Good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to see you guys. Great to be with you. Uh, Everybody okay for the most part? Hard week uh, for a a lot of people at our church. I sat with a couple this week, my wife and I did, whose daughter recently died. Sat with another couple the week before that who had the death of a child. I was with someone at first service whose mom just died yesterday. Uh, There's some new cancer diagnoses in our church. You know, life. Life is hard. Jesus is good. He's really faithful. Some of us are in deep, deep places of pain. God's really present to us in our pain. I want to remind you of that church. He's really present in those furious storms. And and so I have have found by grace um, in my deepest places of pain for Christ to be most present even when I was most mad at him for how cruel life could be. He's really good. He loves you very, very, very much. Um, We're going to take a little break from our normal study in the book of Matthew this morning. We're going to be doing a little family upkeep here. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. You could open to that in your Bibles. First Corinthians 13. So glad if you're here visiting or here for the first time. Welcome. We're really glad that you're with us. Uh, we have another church uh, in Ventura, Reality Ventura, that joins us for our sermons via video. And we want to let them know that we love them and we're one with them. So let's do that. Reality Ventura. They can't see you guys, but they can hear you guys. So... Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, we'll get to the text in a moment. This text was actually part of your one-year Bible reading that we're doing together uh, this last week. If you're reading through the New Testament in a year with us, we read this, I think, on Monday, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Felt prompted by by the Spirit Tuesday to bring it up to the staff. We have our staff meetings on Tuesday. We had a devotion from 1 Corinthians 13. Spent a lot of time praying for us together as a church from 1 Corinthians 13 and the things that are here. So that's why we're taking a break from Matthew. I think the Lord has something for us uh, in this moment as a church together to talk about these things. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV. As I told you a few weeks ago, I got a new NIV. It smells really good. So I'm going to keep rolling with it as long as it smells good. We will read the text in a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love that has been brought to us in your son, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Thank you that through Christ we experience your incredible love. We ask that we would be a church who um, are formed by your, is formed by your love, thrilled by your love continuously, that we would live out of a place of being the beloved of God, beloved daughters and sons of God, and that we would, by grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, love one another in the way that we are loved by you. Even as I pray that, Lord, I'm aware of my desperate need for help. I love, but help my lack of love. We love, but help us love more is the way, in the way that we have been loved by you. So Lord, to that end and for your glory, help me to teach and preach now in a way that's faithful to your word and serves your church well. Help us to hear and respond and obey to you for your glory and for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, unless you're new here, if you've been here for a little while, you know that we have been very busy as a church with mission. Very busy with mission. As a church, we just finished up VBS Vacation Bible School, where we serve hundreds of kids. Yeah, praise God for that during the week. And the kids come in the building and we teach them about Jesus. And this year we were teaching them about Christ's heart for planting churches around the world. And we saw a bunch of kids get saved. We were busy with that. And then 150 of us from the Reality Family of Churches just returned from London where we were on a prayer tour praying for the launch of Reality Church of London. And then while we were there in London, another group from us was in Honolulu. Uh, They were praying for Reality Honolulu, meeting with pastors there, learning from pastors on the ground, looking for places where we might meet in the future as we head toward the launch of that church. 
Uh, just before that, we had two different groups go to Indonesia because, you know, we're looking to reach the unreached. And so we're looking for unreached people groups. And we had a team from our global missions uh, arm of the church and then also from our elders, two different teams there in Indonesia praying and spying it out. Last week, we talked about at length. We reminded ourselves of the vision to reach the unreached. Tonight, we have another prayer meeting for Reality Church of London. We are busy, busy, busy with mission, mission, mission. And that's good. And all of those things that I mentioned and more are all good things. And all of them, because of calling, have a certain sense of urgency to them. But the problem with urgent things and with good things and the problem with being busy in God's work is that we can easily forget, miss, ignore, and neglect the most important thing, the greatest mission. That's a very real possibility for a busy church. That's what I want us to be thinking about this morning as a whole, as we are a family together. And that's what the Paul, the, the Paul, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, was addressing here in the book of Corinthians. He's writing to the church in Corinth. They were a vibrant church, a growing church, a busy church, lots of things going on, lots of work being done. And they were zealous for the gifts. And in in, in chapters 12 and 14, the Apostle Paul is helping them in their understandings of the gifts of the Spirit. And in in chapter 13 that we're looking at this morning, he pauses mid-discourse. And he speaks to them in their busyness and their vibrancy and in all the work. He speaks to them and says, in essence, now... All the ministry and busyness and work of the Holy Spirit through you to accomplish God's mission is good. And it is urgent. But don't forget to give attention to what is best, most important, the greatest mission. In chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is wanting to bring the church in Corinth back to giving attention to the most important thing. So he ends the 12th chapter by saying to them, go ahead and eagerly desire the gifts. And the gifts are for the building up of the church and the going forth of the mission. Go ahead and eagerly desire the gifts. But then he finishes chapter 12 or begins chapter 13, depending on the translation you have, by saying, but I'm going to show you the most excellent way. Go ahead and be excited for the gifts and the ministry and the building up of the body and the mission going forward. But I want to remind you of the most important thing. And then he says in the text, look at it in front of you or look up on the screen. He says in verse one of chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So there we have a portion of, of the famous love chapter. You've heard it at too many weddings. And Paul's argument in saying these things to the church in Corinth was very simply this. No matter what else you are doing, no matter how good it is, no matter how uh, urgent it is, no matter what the call, no matter what else you're doing, no matter how well you may be doing it, if you're not a loving church, then you're not much of a church, he's saying to them. 
in Corinth. It says in verse 1, it's possible to be functioning in very exciting gifts, but to do so without love, and therefore it's just a bunch of noise. Right? Resounding, gone, clanging simple. It says in verse 2, it's possible to move in the prophetic, to know the scriptures, to preach with clarity, and to have faith that sees amazing things done for God but it can be done without love and therefore all that could actually mean nothing. And he says in verse three, it's possible to be extremely generous if I give all my possessions to the poor and to even be willing to suffer for the gospel, endure hardship. He says, they're being willing to suffer for the gospel. I can even do those things so that I might even have opportunity to boast. Look, I gave everything away and I've suffered for the cause of Christ. But he says, if it's done apart from love, then it actually counts for nothing. We, as a church, a busy church on mission, can be doing all these great things, VBS and birthing churches and global missions, and still not be a loving church and so not be much of a church. That's the picture here. That's what he's saying. And, and, and there's, it's strange, there's this tension in the text because one actually wonders, how can you be doing all those things and not really be doing it from, in the space of, and because of love? It, it's weird that that could happen. Well, how does that even happen in a church? And I have an idea as to why that is. I'll make this statement. I I find in my own life, it's easier to do good things than it is to love bad people. Now, you're like, "Who, who do you mean by bad people? I mean you. Me. Us together. I mean, I know if we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we've had a core identity change, our core identity is no longer sinner, our core identity is saint, made holy by the blood of Christ, the beloved daughter of God, the beloved son of God, righteous because of our standing in him. That is true in Christ. But we are bad people who have recognized we need forgiveness. And with all that forgiveness and understanding in Christ, I mean, we're still maybe a little bit naughty. Is it just me? Raise your hand if you're a little bit naughty. Okay, some of you, the rest of you are lying and you're double naughty. (laughs) Double naughty. Twice as naughty. We are, the church, a collection of bad people in many ways. Saints washed in the blood, holy and beloved of God, but bad people, a collection of them. And we're called to love one another in the midst of all of our messiness. And that's hard to do. And I find that it's easier to do good things than it is to love messy people. As an individual, struggle with that. As a church, that's a reality. And the danger that Paul wants to bring out to the church in Corinth is that you can be just busy enough with good things that you don't miss the lack of love. So he wants wants to remind them of the importance of love. Now, let me address the tension in the room. I'm here saying this to you, and you're looking at me, and you're saying, Britt, do you think our church isn't loving? No, I don't think that. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I, I actually don't think that. I think that we're actually, maybe, maybe I have rose-colored glasses because I'm one of the pastors and it means a lot to me, but I actually think we're a loving church. At least I've experienced incredible love from you guys as a church. You might have a different opinion. We all got to answer that to a certain degree, but I think we're actually a loving church. I, I, I don't know that we're the church in Corinth. I think we're more like the church in Thessalonica the Thessalonians. Look what Paul said to them about the same thing. He said, now, about your love for one another. We don't need to write to you, right? Different from the church in Corinth. We don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. 
And in fact, you do love all of God's family. But even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. That's where I think we're at. I think there is some genuine work of God by grace of love that's happened and is happening in our church. But I think we would hear this exhortation to love even more, as it says in another translation, to excel still more in the area of loving. I don't think that there's a love problem in our church. I think there's a love opportunity in our church. Corinth maybe had a love problem. Thessalonica had a love opportunity. I think we have a love opportunity at this moment in our church to just like slow down and say, okay, we're really busy with a lot of mission. Are we giving attention to the greatest mission? And so how do we assess that? How, how can we assess how we're doing at love in areas where we're doing well or we can grow? I think there's, there's three questions that we can ask as to how we might assess this. Number one, we can ask this question, do I feel loved? Do you feel loved? Does the individual feel loved? We'll talk about that in a moment. Number two, you can ask the question, am I trying to love others? We'll speak to that in a moment as well. And thirdly, I think we must ask the question, what is the outsider's experience? The person coming from the outside into this church family, this church gathering, what is their experience like? We'll speak to that in a moment. But let's ask this question. Do I feel loved? It's the most tenuous and dubious of the three questions. Do I feel loved? It's a little bit dangerous, really, because of our tendency to assess everything by how we feel. Don't we do that as people? We have this tendency to assess everything by how we feel. Now, the Christian faith is much more than feelings. And your life is much more than feelings. And if we're only ever trapped in how we feel, that is a difficult life indeed. And yet feelings are real inside and outside the church. And there is a value, of course, to feeling. But we have a tendency to assess everything by how we feel. And we have a tendency to evaluate everything by ourselves as opposed to a lens of the other. I mean, I generally assess my day when I go to bed at night. Like, how was it for me? Did my things happen? Was my agenda for? Did I get to do what I wanted to do? We just have a deep concern for ourselves. So that within the Christian community, that. The question is a little bit dangerous, but it's valid nonetheless. In the church, as we gather, as we scatter, as we do life together, in your experience here, us together, do I feel loved? Let me say this. We should feel and experience God's love as the church. We should experience God's love as God's people. After all, what we are as a church is the gathering to, for, and around Jesus. When we come together like this, we are gathering to, for, and around Jesus. Even as we scatter, our lives are gathered or centered to, for, and around Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect expression of God's love. In his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his present intercession for us, in his coming return in the day of great reversal and resurrection and renewal, Jesus is a perfect expression of God's love. And so if we really are gathering to, for, and around Jesus, then we ought to, in some real way, experience the love of God. I've been thinking a bit about our text. Let's put it back up on the screen, verses 4 through 8 this week. And that description of love, famous description, that description of agape love. You know what works really well with this and helps us to think about uh, Jesus? Is if we put his name as a substitute for love or it, when we're reading it. 
It works really well. You want, you want to do it together? Let's do it together. We'll do this. So any, you're going to have to think a little bit. When it says love, we'll substitute Jesus. When it says it, same thing. Or anytime there's that reference, we'll put Jesus in. Let's do it together. See how this sounds to us. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Amen. That, that works well, right? I mean, that, that like fits. Like, ah. Oh. So then, the right understanding, the true expression of love is found in Jesus. And we are Jesus followers. And the church is gathering to, for, and around Jesus. So then we ought to encounter the love of God in Christ. And there are two ways that we as a church should be able to encounter the love of God in Christ. Two ways. First of all, I will say, intangible experience. Intangible experience. Let me get a little mystic here. Let me be a little ethereal. Intangible experience. I, 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 I believe that people should be able to come into the gathering that is too foreign around Jesus, who is the very expression of God's love. And there should be this like intangible thing in the atmosphere, in the air. Like there should be some electricity of God's love. You know about this electricity. Even if you go to like your, the concert for your favorite band, right? You go there, there's like this electricity in the air before there's ever been a note played. You know this when you go see Star Wars when it comes out in a few weeks, you super nerdy people. There's gonna be like this electricity. You're gonna dress up and go in the theater. It's gonna be way over the top. You're gonna feel it. Those things are shadows. Those things aren't even mere reverberations. I think because what we believe about the church is that Christ is present in his church. Revelation says he's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That means he's present in his church. God inhabits the praises of his people. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is present to us. And I think as we endeavor to make ourselves present to him, there's this intangible experience that ought to be there. And then in everything that's done, that that ought to be there. Like in, in the worship, there should be this intangible experience of God's love. In the preaching, this intangible experience of God's love. The Holy Spirit is the one who pours the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one whose job it is to exalt and manifest Christ. So when we gather around Jesus, we should experience his love in some Mysterious, ethereal way, I think. Secondly, there should be tangible expression of God's love. And this happens only through one another. This is what happens through the church. I, maybe we can't count on the intangible. I, I, I'm not sure. But for sure what Paul is saying is there must be this tangible expression of God's love amongst God's people. Where we're endeavoring to love one another with the love with which we have been loved. It's part of what we're supposed to be about as God's people. And you may be sitting here and you may experience, as I'm sure we all have it sometimes, we just feel like, well, I, I, I don't know that I'm experiencing God's love through God's people. You know, life is hard, life is long, life is messy. We're going to have ups and downs. We're going to have difficulties. We're going to have disagreements. Sometimes you feel like, I'm, I don't think I'm experiencing God's love through God's people. There's three things you could generally do with that. One is you can take it to God, which means you could tattletale on his church. Tell God, your people aren't loving me good, God. 
You can do that, but you can take it to God and really say, God, I'm... Because what we're all looking for isn't one another's love, it's God's love. But it somehow comes through us within the church. So we can straight, go straight to God and go, your people are blown up, but God, I really need to know and experience and be comforted by your love. We can talk to God about it. We can complain about it. Nobody's loving me. Nobody understands me. Nobody's meeting me in my deep places of need and pain and, and then wait around for it. Or thirdly, we can begin to love those around us in the way that we wish those around us would love us. Because that's the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic is not one of reciprocity. Okay, you do for me and then I'll do for you. The Christian ethic is one of giving. It's the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It doesn't say do unto others what they're doing to you. The scripture speaks to the opposite of that all the time. It says bless instead of curse. Do not return insult for insult. Do unto others as you wish they would do unto you. So if we're not feeling the love in the church of Christ through the people of Christ, we can talk to God about it. That's good. We can complain about it and wait around for it. Or we can start to love each other like we wish we were being loved. So then that leads us to the question, the second question that we ask. Am I seeking to love others? In the church, as the church, moving beyond, am I feeling loved? Am I seeking to love others? This is a better question. This is a more theological, Christian, scripture-formed question. Because again, the approach to the kingdom is not trying to be loved, the approach to the kingdom is giving the love that's been brought to us in Christ to other people. Look at the mindset that's given to us in Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, what if that Philippians 2, that picture, what if that was real? I mean, it is real, but what if we always live that out in a real way? What if every time we said, oh, we're the church and we're gathering or we're being the church or we're, we're scattering together on mission or we're meeting together in small groups, what if our primary approach was that, concern for the other rather than primarily concern for ourselves? How would that change our existence together as a church? How would that change our gathering? How would that change our disagreements? How would that change doing life together? If our attitude was truly other before me, how would our experience of being the church change? Colossians says a similar thing in different words. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy. You see the since then statement? Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, then clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Look at this phrase. This has been getting me this week. Make allowance for each other's faults. Pause right there. Man, that's an important phrase. I really want to grow in this area. Make allowance for each other's faults. What sits behind this text is this idea that we are going to have faults, remember? A bunch of bad people gathered together. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to mishandle each other. We're going to let each other down. And what the scripture tells us on the front end is let's make allowance for that. Like a margin of error. Like, here's the goal, be perfect toward me, but if you don't hit it, here's the margin of error, acceptable margin of error. 
make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves. This is what we're trying to do today, okay? This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to put this on. Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. That's a high call. That's the call upon the people who gather to, for, and around Jesus. And it's because of the love with which we've been loved, as the text says. John, the apostle of love, spoke of the same thing, 1 John 4. He said, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. See that phrase? There's meant to be an expression, an experience of the love of God through us toward one another and those who would come in. Put uh, 1 Corinthians 4 th- 13, 4 through 8 up again. Now, here's what, here's another helpful exercise that I've been doing a lot this week and it's been hurting me, is instead of putting Jesus' name as a substitute for love, putting my own name. You're not feeling it. Okay, I want, <laughs> I want you to do it now with your own name. Not out loud because that would be overly cacophonous. But quietly now, read through the whole thing and where it says love, put your name. And where it says it, put your name. And then let's talk about how that feels. Start start doing that. I'm not going to do it again. I've done it too much this week already. How's that working for you? Who's nailing it? Who's like, oh, dude, crushing this? Who's slightly less than crushing it? Am I seeking to love others? And what does that love look like? It looks like Jesus. And it looks so much more like Jesus than it does us. So the paramount issue in the church moving forward has to be Jesus. We have to decrease and let him increase. It's got to be more about him and less about our agendas and our wants and our desires and our things. More about Jesus. And and our gatherings together is an opportune time to practice these things. I think we've all concurred we need practice. And the church gathering is not the church in whole, and it's not everything. It's not even the most important thing. But it is one time when we're all together and we get this opportunity to try to like be this and live into this, love each other this way. And that makes us think about the outsider, right? What is the outsider's experience? And maybe outsider sounds like too exclusive of language. The visitor, the the looky-loo, the first-time person, or the person who's church shopping, or looking around, or just got invited, or they come in. You know, here's what they don't know. They have come here looking for the love of God. Because whether they know it or not, they're not a Christian yet, whatever, and whether they know it or not, God has written eternity on their hearts. 
And there is this longing in every human heart for the love of God. And when someone says, I I think I'll go to church, they may not know what they're looking for, but they're looking for the love of God. And disappointment of all disappointments, they get us. But we are meant to be this expression of God's love. They're looking for the love of God. Intangible, tangible. What is the outsider's experience when they come into our church? This is why this is so important. God's love is a welcoming and inviting love. God's love is welcoming and inviting. It's not exclusive or exclusionary. God's love in Christ is a welcoming and inviting love. Look at the way Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 5. For we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were, mark the phrase, utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Do you see the tension and the juxtaposition in that text? The text is that we were utterly helpless, sinners, enemies of God even. But what happened was that God in Christ pursued us, came after us in love, so that we have been made friends with God, we've been reconciled with God, we've been saved, we've been delivered from condemnation. And we didn't do anything that was meritorious of that love. We didn't do anything to deserve that love. There was nothing that we were able to do to dress ourselves up and make us lovable. Text said we were sinners, utterly helpless, enemies of God. But the love of God is a welcoming, inviting, even pursuing love. That's what the love of God looks like. God welcomes us before we deserve it. And so whether people know it or not, because eternity is written in their hearts, when they come into a church, when they come into our church, this question is deep within them. Will I be welcomed? Can I belong? Would I be accepted? And though it may appear as though it's a horizontal issue that it has to do with people and us, it's actually a vertical issue where they're desiring the love of God for which they were made. And lo and behold, disappointment of all disappointments, they get us. But again, we have this glorious opportunity to be the welcoming love of God, to be the inviting love of God, to be the pursuing love of God. When there's nothing meritorious, when there's nothing deserving, when there's nothing lovable, we as followers of Jesus are called to help people experience God's love through the way that we love them. It's a high and wonderful call. And it's important as a church that we think about this in this busy season with mission. And now we're entering the fall. And in our culture, our church always grows in the fall. We have college students that are coming back. They're bringing their friends. Families are getting reoriented to a a normal rhythm of life after summer. So they're coming back to church. People are starting to grow up and they think, well, now I've got kids. I want my kids to know something about God. I'm going to take them to church. There's just this thing that happens culturally in the fall where we will begin to grow and new people will be coming through the doors. Someone sent me this study recently. Um, 
from a website which I had never seen before and I haven't seen since, but the website is churchmarketingsucks.com. I've never been back to it, so I'm not sure what that means, but cool. And they did a series of studies to look at why do people go to church, a church, and stay there or not? What attracts them and what keeps them? And much to my dismay, their study shows that 90% of people check out and then choose a church because of the preaching or preacher. No pressure, Brett. But the study went on to say that only about 30% of people who stay at that church do so because of the preaching or preacher. 90% came and maybe chose to keep going because of the preaching or preacher. But there was no staying, sticky, lasting power in that. Only 30% said they stayed there for that reason. The majority of people stay because of, quote from the studies, the friendliness of the members. In fact, it said 82% of people that stayed at a church said they did so because they were greeted by a congregant. No pressure. They may, I don't know if this is true or not, it's a study, I don't know. They may come for the preaching, but they will only stay for the people. But it's not the people, is it? It's the love of God that their hearts desperately desire being faithfully manifested and expressed through the people. 82% said they stayed simply because they were greeted by a congregant. Now that, that changes the way that we do our greetings then, doesn't it, maybe? Because if you're like me, my least favorite part of any church service is when they say, turn to the person next to you and meet them. I just always make sure that the person next to me is someone I know. I like, oh, I don't, I don't know you, I don't see you. I'm always looking for the person now. I'm sitting next to my wife. Hi, sweetheart, how are you? Let's kiss. Done it a million times. I, yeah, yeah. I don't like meeting people. You may think because I'm a pastor, I'm like this extrovert and I love people and I feel comfortable around people. I'm actually an invert, introvert and I don't like meeting people. Worst pastor ever. <laughs> so the greeting time is my least favorite time. Can we not greet and you just preach? Can we do no greeting and just preaching is what I always think. But what the study shows is that will never work for a church because the preaching at the end of the day is not what brings someone into a meaningful relationship with the broader family of God. It's actually the family themselves who reach out and love one another. So the way that we greet people, even in this season of our church, when we're busy and we're doing lots of good things and there's an urgency and there'll be growth this fall when new people come in is really important. So you need to be a better person than me. You need to be willing to go outside of yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit and love somebody. Beyond who you know, look what Jesus said about just loving people that you know and love already in Matthew. We already saw this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, it can be translated, if you greet only your friends at church, How are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. It's not as though the world doesn't know how to greet people. It's not as though the world doesn't have nice people. It's not as though love is only a Christian thing. Can all actually be found out there. In fact, I think the nicest people I've ever met were not at church or in the church. Sorry. Jesus said it's really important the way that we love bad people, each other. I don't mean bad outsider. I mean, that's just who we are. 
God is really good at loving bad people. That's you, that's me, that's us. And the call in the church, the burden of the text, is that we would grow in that. Realizing that even though most people stay at a church because others were nice, they can find that anywhere. It's not about niceness. It's because in some way, whether it was intangible or made tangible through you, in some way they came and they experienced God's love. They might not have words for it, vernacular for it, or theology to surround it, but they experienced God's love. And Romans 12 says about our love that our love should be sincere, without hypocrisy. That means that this is not a call to fake it. You know what I feel on Sundays? I feel all sorts of pressure to fake it. Right? Because I got to stand up like at the pulpit and be super excited about Jesus and all these things. You know, not every week is a good week. I don't feel great every Sunday morning. I'm not like holy and filled with the spirit all the time. I'm like a carnal, disgusting beast. That's my wife and my son. So I I, I sometimes feel this pressure to like come in and fake it. And then you know what I do every Sunday. If you don't don't go out the silver doors, I stand at the silver doors and I say bye to people when they're leaving. And I feel this pressure to like, oh, I don't even like people. I got to love the people. And this message could easily lend itself to that, but that's not what this is. This is not a call to fake it. This is a call on the church to go deeper into God's love for you. We love because we were first loved. And I find in myself a deep lack of love for the insider, for the outsider. And the answer is not put on your Christian mask and fake it and pretend like everything's good. The answer is go deeper into the love of God that's been brought to us in Christ. By the work of the Holy Spirit, let my heart be ever more thrilled with the love of God and the fact that I was utterly helpless, a sinner and an enemy of God, and I've been reconciled, made a friend, and brought near and have a standing in grace before God as his beloved son or daughter. So let that form in us a deeper love. That's what, that's what the call is. Again, I don't, I don't think we're Corinth. I think we're Thessalonica. I don't think there's a problem. I think there's a great opportunity for us in this season to love better. So I've struggled with that all week. The sermon is finished, but don't like get fidgety. I've struggled with that all week. And I found myself going back to Zephaniah 3. Who knows Zephaniah 3? Oh, well, let me enlighten you. This is... This is like one of the best passages in all the Bible. Zephaniah 3. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. He has turned back your enemy. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. Now look at verse 17. This is a piece de resistance. <laughs> For the Lord your God is living among you. This is true for the church. He is a victorious warrior. He will take delight in you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, give it a yay, give it a yay. God is among you. He will delight in you with gladness. Wait a minute, I'm, I, I was utterly helpless. The rebel, the enemy, bad, sinner. He delights in us as a beloved of God. He delights in you as you put your faith in Christ. He will renew you in his love. Who needs that? Renew me in your love, God. He will exalt over you with loud singing? 
Listen, we thought that the loud singing part was the church's job, which you did not do a good job at this morning, by the way. I heard you. You were not singing loud. The band was rocking. You were like, but you know what? Hall pass, no problem. The best thing is that God will exalt over you with loud singing. This is true love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son for us so that we are the beloved of God over whom God sings. Let that melt your hearts with joy this week. Thank you, God, for these glorious truths for your great and awesome love for us. Lord, I don't know. I'll just pray for myself as I think about myself. I know I fall so short in loving others, but I know I've been loved so greatly by you. Your mercy and your compassion toward me have been unending. Thank you, God, that your mercies are new every morning. I would pray, maybe we would pray together, Lord, that you would help us to be more faithful expressions of your love. We know we're busy and you've allowed us by grace and for your own glory to do some cool things. But let us, Lord, save us from being just resounding gongs or clanging cymbals. Let us be faithful expressions of your love to one another, to those who come in. Good times and in bad times. Forgive me. Forgive us for the places and spaces where we failed to love. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to realize more fully God's love for us and so to be more faithful vessels of that love. In Jesus' name.